Welcome to Profiles in Social Innovation, spotlighting local leaders delivering sustainable solutions to complex problems, brought to you by the University of Maryland, Baltimore, in the heart of downtown Baltimore City. I'm Jim Kucher, and I'm the Program Director of the Graduate Certificate in Social Entrepreneurship at UMB's Graduate School. UMB is introducing a new four-course certificate in social entrepreneurship, and to celebrate that launch, we're reprising a series of conversations with some of the brightest lights on the social entrepreneurship stage. On today's profile, we're talking with Cindy Truitt, President and CEO of Humanum, a broad-based human services organization that builds pathways to employment, personal autonomy, and economic opportunity for those who need it most. Humanum embraced the concept of social enterprise almost 40 years ago, and they continue to not only create jobs, but create economic opportunity for ancillary business development for community members. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So I guess the first question I have for you, Cindy, is, is, is we know what a human is, <laughs> but what the heck is humanum? What is a humanum? Where did those? Where did the I and the M come from? What's the deal <laughs> That's a great there? Question. That's a great question, uh, Jim. And first, just thank you very much uh, for having me on. I love talking to you, so this will be fun. Um, great provocative questions. I hope. Um, so humanum. So you know, we're a fifty-year uh, organization, and back, I guess, it was around two thousand maybe. Um, and I see my colleague Lori with me. So I guess she's going to be my fact checker. <laughs> um, 2000, we, we used to be called DSG, Developmental Service Group. And we were really intentional about changing our name to be more representative of what we do and who we are. And we did basically a survey of individuals that we supported and served. And at that time, it was mostly folks with disabilities. And one of the comments they wrote back was to be treated like they were human, too. Mm. And so Henry Pasco, our former CEO, kind of juggled it around to do I am human and just made it humanum. So that's how the human I am <laughs> came about. Um, a lot of people mistake it for humana, which we are not. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Well, that's, that's you know, yeah. branding is always an interesting conversation, but. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, so DSG stood for what again? DSG stood for Developmental Services Group. We learned a lesson in branding <laughs> from that name. Um, that was, you know, back in the 70s. Um, right, right. But that, but that also shows kind of the roots of the organization, right? Sure, so, sure. so it was 50 years ago set up to serve the needs of those who were um, yep. developmentally challenged in some way, shape, or form. Yep, yep. They had developmental disabilities um, and were graduating out of high school. And back in the 70s, folks that um, had developmental disabilities typically were put into sheltered workshops of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, and we kind of changed that paradigm and moved into the support and employment movement. But yeah, that's the roots we're in developmental disabilities. Right. And, 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 and during that time, it was a straight up traditional nonprofit entity, meaning 501c3 registered, yep. funded by grants and donations and, and all that regular nonprofity stuff, right? Yeah, it was, um, interestingly, we had very little grant funding. Uh, we were mostly a fee-for-service 
um, back in the day with the Division of Rehab Services. So right, but fee for services from from government. Correct. So right, not so government. Right. Mm-hmm. Not from a market sale. Correct. Absolutely. Right, and you know that's that's an interesting point for for those of us for those that are with us today that may not be aware of this. Even in true nonprofit, fee for service is a big part of the revenue stream that happens. It's mm-hmm. just a transfer from government. And there's a lovely debate about whether or not that actually is a government grant or not, because mm-hmm. it does initiate from our tax dollars and pass through, but you're paid for activity as opposed to just kind of a lump sum that's right. kind of right. a thing. Yep. Right. Yep. And, 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 and that's and that was that's the roots of the organization. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So so your your predecessor, Hermie Posco, has this brainstorm to put the IM on the end. We rebrand. Um, and that was when you said uh, 2000? 2000, 2000, between 2000, 2004. So, okay. you know, okay. so, like- so even before that, if I've got my timeline straight, there was this idea of this other thing. Yeah. That you now call eye scan. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Yeah. And so, what? What? What is? What's eye scan? I mean, it's not like me putting my <laughs> eyeball on a on a camera, right? Oh, I wish. Actually, I wish we were in that space. <laughs> you know, we're not. So, um, it was a very interesting evolution. So, Humanum really was uh, primarily a workforce training organization for people with developmental disabilities. And, 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 that, and just just for the folks that may not be familiar with that, workforce training means? So basically helping folks acquire the necessary skills to, whether it's social, behavioral, or actual hard vocational skills, to be able to exit and get a job in the market. And so- So, so become employable in some way. In some way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. And and at that time we were also, and like I even hate saying this, but it was what was state of the art back then was running a sheltered workshop for people who were deemed uh, unable to work competitively in the market. So we did. And, and sheltered, just just to, uh, again unpack, sheltered workshop yeah. is. So sheltered workshop is as it was a space where people with disabilities could work, and it was typically piece rate, sub-minimum wage, and it was um, within the past 10 years ruled as, we, we exited a long time ago, but it was ruled as, um, you know, basically violation of people's rights. And so- Well, then, yeah, yeah. to go back to the sort of Victorian era, a sweatshop. Yeah. Exactly. And so it was ruled, it was ruled and we, you know, we exited that though many, many, many of the parents and the individuals we serve and supported did not want that to, uh, that safety net they felt to go away. Nonetheless, it went away. But in thinking through who we were back then, we really wanted to think about how could we grow workforce training for people with disabilities outside of a sheltered workshop environment. And in 1983, uh, 1982, 1983, our, uh, my predecessor, Henry Pasco, was instrumental in changing some of the procurement laws to um, look at all the all that the state purchases, services, commodities, and kind of be part of that pecking order of procurement for individual uh, for programs like Humana. Okay, rehab programs. And so what we wound up doing was looking at what the state purchased and we found this document scanning. And Hmm. back then it was microfilming. So some people know what that is. I talked about this one time and it was (laughs) young, young people are like microfilming. I was like, before your time. It was a thing, ask your parents. (laughs) It was a thing. 
it was the thing. So um, we really wanted That's to do what Google's for. <laughs> right. We wanted to do something different than typical janitorial, typical now food service, which uh, we're doing. Um, so we really chose this technology and we, we birthed iScan and iScan is a records management um, company. It's underneath Humanus 501c3. And we basically do uh, document imaging, scanning, x-ray scanning, majority government contracts. And we've employed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of individuals and primarily those with disabilities. Um, mm -hmm. But it was our first foray into what we call today a social enterprise. We did not call that. Well, I was going to say you were social enterprise when social enterprise wasn't cool. Yeah, yeah, we were. We we were just doing this. It, it was a great way to, you know, do training and to provide competitive wages in integrated environments. And you know, our first contract was with the Motor Vehicle Administration of Maryland, which you still have today. Uh, they were warring on paper, and they're starting to chunk away at that war. <laughs> Mm -hmm. many, many, many years later. Um, but that that was really our first kind of foray into larger government contracts outside of the typical rehabilitation uh, work that we did. Right. So it really was driven more out of the need to find a different way to deliver the service. And the fact that it generated revenue for the organization almost was a slightly surprising benefit to the project yeah. it was it was it was slightly surprising it was also somewhat planned in that when we started launching these social enterprise or this social enterprise back then humanum at that time really did not do fundraising and to this day um our fundraising is about direct fundraising is about one tenth of one percent of our organization and so the idea was how could we create a sustainable organization that embeds job training as part of the service offered so market driven i was never talking about this many years ago and nor were we even thinking about that but in, in essence that's what we really did we were in the market we have these government contracts, we were able to embed the training model inside and the support model inside of that contract. Right, but, but the earned income piece really was kind of not was, what was driving the project. It was in there, but it wasn't what was sort of the yeah. impetus behind making it happen. Yeah, it was creating opportunity for those that we served. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I want to circle back to one thing before we go on, which is which I, I did not know that you just mentioned, which is that even today, you know, when, when the typical individual thinks of quote unquote charity. Mm -hmm. They think of something where, you know, I make a donation, I put dollars in the plate at church when they pass the plate or, you know, uh, I send money off to and, 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 and even today, if I'm hearing you correctly, that individual donor piece is is not a big part of how you do, which I think is kind of counterintuitive to the way a lot of people think. Yeah, it is not a big part, you know, it would be great if it was, but one of the things that we're not, you know, it's always been the kind of our mantra is that we did not want to raise funds in order to support operations. So if we were raising funds and people are contributing to Humanum, which they do, and it's appreciated, we typically, you know, want to use that for either program exploration or enhancement of programming or something else. Um, we were trying to pre-COVID raise dollars for a social innovation fund so that would allow us to basically 
take our own risks, fund our own, you know, different forays or startups, and then, you know, replenish the fund. Um, but that's pre-COVID, <laughs> life before COVID. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, life. yeah. So it was really, it's it. Our organization is really predicated on this, just kind of a, a churn of that fee for service, um, regardless of what you know we want to debate on fee for service. About seventy four percent, seventy five percent of our funding is really driven by fee for service. Right, but fee for service on the contract side, in terms of delivering the services to your constituents, and then you've got this other sort of earned income piece. Um, so here we've got this organization that's churning along, getting all of these, um, government support money. Um, and then you've got this little thing on the side that's doing all of this scanning mm -hmm. and making a few bucks and employing some people and everything's chugging along and life is pretty good. You know, generally speaking as as good as it ever gets in an organization that's always trying to balance, uh, money and mission. And then all of a sudden you decide to go and collect bricks. <laughs> yes. Hit me over the head with those bricks. Right. So, so one of the things that we stress when we're coaching social entrepreneurs uh, or any entrepreneur for that matter is that it's hard to balance expertise in multiple industries. Yeah. You know, Warren Buffett has this huge portfolio of companies in all these different industries, but at the end of the day, he's really just putting money into them. He's not running any of mm -hmm. them, right? So you've got your sort of, you know, job training thing that you're doing. You've got this document scanning thing. And all of a sudden, y'all decide to run out and start picking up houses that are falling down yeah, and collecting all the... Yeah. Yeah, 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 I know, right? Interesting uh, little story. Um, so it all the whole growth of our social enterprise division uh, really happened when we finished the American Brewery building, the renovation that we did in East Baltimore. Which, by the way, if you haven't seen it, folks, it's absolutely gorgeous. You should go there tomorrow. It's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was an amazing project. Um, really fairly transformational for me, uh, quite life changing in many ways. But you know, we finished the project in 2009, right when the recession was like, boom, hitting big. And when we got there, we were trying to um, overlay our traditional workforce training model. So bring people in, do job training, place people in jobs, which is still important. But it wasn't enough. We were looking at at that time in the communities in which we serve well over 30, 40% unemployment. So there needed to be multiple solutions. So we then hearkened back to iScan saying if we could grow a division where we then had control over, you know, the employment piece and really onboarding folks with pretty significant barriers, we could be additive um, to not only create jobs but kind of create a pathway for careers and also have people not have to go through job training without getting paid. So you're immediately attached to a job, you're immediately attached to benefits. Um, and then, you know, we can help you develop a network and, you know, move on. So that idea during the recession was like, when I think back about this, I'm like, what? But anyway, the idea of the recession was let's grow this division. And some of the criteria that we set forth was any business we got into had to be labor intensive. Otherwise, wouldn't be creating the jobs. Um, and it had to be um, profitable. We had to make it profitable. It had to show some signs of life during a 
decided period of time, three years, five years, whatever we decided, depending on the industry. So I was approached by a colleague of mine, uh, Jeff Carroll, who now runs um, a business called the Urban Wood Economy, fantastic, um, to think about embedding a deconstruction social enterprise in Humanum. And he ran something. And, and for those playing along at home, deconstruction means exactly that. It means tearing the building down and reclaiming the pieces and parts. Yep, taking apart structures piece by piece, almost the uh, almost directly the opposite way it was built. And so after a lot of gyrations and pro formas and thinking about this, we decided let's take a shot. And we started details, deconstruction. And it was started on a model that took down houses in mostly high wealth neighborhoods. Um, there was a tax incentive or tax deduction available for the material that was donated by way of deconstruction. We oh, so the homeowner, the homeowner actually got a deduction. They got a deduction. We charged a fee, flat out fee. Yeah, you're um, right. And right. they were able to deduct that, which was uh, transferred into our ownership. So any kind of material that we were able to extract from the house. So we wound up um, doing that up and down the East Coast, Florida, New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey. And... Um, I started thinking about Baltimore and I started, this is Stephanie Rawlings Blake and the mortgage fraud settlement. And she was going to put more money into taking down the 16, 18,000 blighted row homes. And um, Jeff Carroll and I thought, what if we applied that model onto, you know, blight removal in the city? A, it would create six to eight times more jobs than traditional, you know, a wrecking ball and, you know, a guy with a hose <clears throat> and also create an opportunity for salvage. The trick was the margins uh, were low and the city only wanted to pay um, at the demolition rate or just slightly above it. So we had to figure out how to, how to fund that delta between what it would cost us and what we were getting paid. And you know, for that, a nonprofit person, you're using an awful lot of business terms here. <laughs> Jim, like, well, look who I learned from. So if you haven't taken any courses that he's involved with, please do. Um, but, it, you know, it, it made a lot of sense. I mean, and like I'll fast forward in a second to, to this because it is it is um, like a love affair and a disaster and uh, a heartache all at the same time. But we wound up figuring out, um, we went to St. Louis and we uh, looked at their bricks and their operations. We wound up figuring out how to create a market for uh, reused bricks. Um, Baltimore is beautiful, beautiful bricks. It kind of rivals St. Louis and Chicago. And so we wound up figuring out how to move the bricks and also reclaim the wood that was in the, in the houses. Um, and we wound up creating one of the first wholesale markets for brick um, recycled brick in Baltimore, and we shipped internationally up and down the East Coast into the Gulf Coast. Um, it was pretty amazing. And we were doing a fantastic job at, at uh, taking down the houses in a really dignified manner. Um, and I say that because it just preserved a sense of history and it employed people within the communities in which the houses were being taken down. And so it, it created you know, that that's a fascinating point. I apologize for interrupting, yeah. but I, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot is, is community engagement. Yeah. Right. And and how one of the mistakes that the sort of nonprofit industrial complex makes is sort of parachuting into a neighborhood with a solution. Mm. Right. And 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 even if the house is no longer occupied, you know, recognizing that hey, this is a place where people lived. 
where people were born, where yes. people got married, where people died. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just a fantastic thought. Yeah, Thank I, you for, for being yeah. that conscious about that. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's, well, it's really striking when you go into communities where the houses, I mean, are clearly in horrendous shape. I mean, a huge health hazard. They need to come down and the community wanted them to come down and then having conversations and meeting people and employing their relatives and just kind of making it, um, kind of full circle, you know, you learned about what happened then, you learned about, you know, you found things, we found diaries, we found oh. so many things in the house. Oh. And um, beautiful. Yeah, so it, it felt so much more humane than just, you know, right, so it, right. Which, and, which is not how people would think about it. You know, people would think about know. it as an asset and just come yeah. in and tear it and, 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 yeah. and, and, yeah, and both, pull yeah. down the bricks. A beautiful thing. Yeah, it was it was great, and what was developed outside of that were, you know, community informed um, choices. So different parks, um, really beautiful uh, urban forests, gorgeous uh, stuff. So, yeah, we felt like there was so much contribution there. So, um, what wound up coming out of that, and Jim will probably ask me this, is we rebranded the reclamation piece of that and started a separately branded company called Brick and Board. And it was branded separately, um, really to attract a market that we needed, the designers, the architects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, you know, we wound up introducing different kind of wood in there other than Baltimore, which is yellow pine. Um, so we really kind of expanded on that. But yes, yeah, so no, and, it, and it's become such a thing, you know, I mean, yeah. you, you see all these properties being rebuilt and, and, you know, stuff coming into them. So so you've, you've got a way to earn income and train people in deconstructing the building. Yeah. But then you've got another piece of the organization that has a way to train people and earn income by becoming a reseller yeah. of yep. the materials. Yep. So, so, so all that's starting to spin up. There's all this different stuff yep. going on. And all of a sudden, this, this moving and storage thing <laughs> kind of... Yes. Wanders in the door. And, yeah. and, and now, now you're essentially a, a portfolio manager. Yeah. You're, you're, you know, you're a small Warren Buffett, right? You've got yeah. all these different companies oh and all God, these different right? places doing all this different stuff. And, and, you know, in, in addition to the fact that I'm sure you now need therapy yeah. and, and, and multiple Hair doses died. of Tylenol on a, on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, yes. How does that start to change the dynamics of the organization? You know, so, so from a managerial standpoint, right? You know, you've got one little side project doing document scanning and you're making a few bucks. That's great. You know, la, 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 la. Now you've got this whole portfolio of stuff. Um, it's kind of like, at least to my perspective, it's kind of like having, you know, multiple kids. Mm-hmm that are all in different sports and different interests and you know the whole calendar of what time the minivan has to be at what field for what you yeah. know yeah it's it's it was really hard um and um humanum as an organization you know had mostly people that worked in the rehabilitation field and the way our model for social enterprising that division was created was that they were all part of our 501c3. So there weren't separate companies. We were just doing business as City Seeds, iScan, Details, Brick and Board. So all of the employees were all Humanum employees. So over the past five or six years, it's been like 400 
employees um, that we've you know hired, trained, so that we're 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 peers. We're all paid differently in different markets, but we're peers. We have the same benefits. We have everything else. So onboarding. Um, a mass amount of people, you really, you know, really forced our organization to think differently about personnel policies, onboarding, training, communications, so many uh, different things. A, because we're in different markets. B, when, you know, we have to make all of our uh, information accessible, it, it has to be accessible to our, all of our employees. And it was a very different experience. And we've heard a lot about having a first job in a quote, corporate environment. How do you take advantage of all that's being offered? What is an EAP? How do you take advantage of it? So it was a real kind of step back and think about our policies, our practices. Um, how do you account for literacy uh, differences in your training materials? So it kind of uh, it was like a ba-boom to our HR department. I'm like, hey, we're starting all these enterprises. Like, oh, boom. Hey guys, let's, we're putting on a show. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I, there's, a, there's an interesting point there that I want to circle back to, which is <clears throat> going back to the DSG days, right? And, and that whole mindset, right? The, the employee that's going to come into that organization is typically going to be someone that comes from a social work or an right. occupational therapy mm -hmm. kind of perspective, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden you've got this army of folks calling themselves entrepreneurs, right? Wandering into this. So, so w w was there, you know, sort of a, a, a disconnect between a culture class? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Yes. So, um, Back to you know Jim's uh, idea of having these different enterprises, you really have to hire people who are industry experts. So iSkin was homegrown. You know we sent one of our what was a case manager rehab counselor to get training, and he was great. Now he's all document imaging, but you really can't do that in, in most industries. So we went out and hired um, people who were industry experts, but also just you know into that whole startup culture. Well, you know, many of you know that when you're in this quote startup culture life is fast, life changes. You're like trying to figure out things left and right, change this, change that, get here, do this, bootstrap here. And as part of a larger organization that doesn't like bootstrap, you know, you, you wind up um, coming into why can't you do it faster? Why can't we change this policy? Why can't we have access to this? You, why do we have to do it your way? Why can't we do it this way? So, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of tension. And I found myself at, mo at many times being the mediator, you know, between between the two and trying to figure our way into, as an example, being mostly um, government funded or grant funded, you know, we had our uh, great finance department, but we got our financial statements like 15, 18 days after the close of the prior month. Well, everyone knows as a startup, you know, you could be dead and buried, <laughs> you know, a week after that. So, you know, we really kind of changed the way we were looking at how do we get access to information? How do we analyze our financials? How do we look at this differently? And I have to tell you that um, the person that we hired for Brick and Board, Max Pollock, who actually we spun out Brick and Board, he actually now uh, owns it and runs it with the employees. I learned so much from him. He was, uh, he tested back to the child scenario. Boy, he tested every, every bit of um, what I thought to be true and had to be because it was the way the policies were done. And it really stretched me to try to think through, well, let's try this a different way. Let's make this, you know, try to work within the organizational structure. So 
it, it created a lot of chaos, to be honest. I hope you're finding today's conversation inspiring. If you have a heart to make the world a better place, but aren't quite sure where to start, the Graduate School at the University of Maryland, Baltimore may be able to help. UMB recently launched a four-course graduate certificate in social entrepreneurship, a fully online program that provides the practical skills to drive social impact with sustainable funding. The program is affordable, it's accessible, and it's enrolling now for the fall of 2024. Our social entrepreneurship curriculum provides the fundamental tools and competencies needed to take ideas to action and prepares you to build your own venture or lead change in an existing organization. If you'd like to begin to build your own profile in social innovation, contact us at graduate.umaryland.edu innovation. Now let's rejoin the conversation. So then we put in this other thing that does this moving in storage, but also kind of has some operations that are similar to iScan. Yeah. So in a way, it was sort of a product extension, but now you've got another piece of it in there. You've got all this culture clash going on. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that that happens is the market continues to evolve and shift yeah. and change. And things that were true in the past are no longer true. Like if I remember correctly, the program that Mayor Rawlings Blake had didn't survive her predecessor, her her successors, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. So, so yeah. how did that all, you know? Yeah. So I just mean, there were there were some hard lessons in there for you guys, right? And some knocks. tough times and hard knocks, hard knocks. Yeah, definitely school hard knocks. Um, yeah. So running multiple in multiple enterprises and in multiple industries really requires an infrastructure um, that you know, we might not have had, right? So, cause you're out, you have to be out there scanning constantly what's happening in this industry, what's happening in that industry? How do we pivot here? Who do we need to partner with? How do we develop the ecosystem? Because we really were designed to have enterprises in industry clusters. That makes sense to me, you know? And it also makes sense for growth, growth by partnership, growth by joint venture, growth by acquisition. And that's what Jim was referring to with iScan. It's part of iScan's, um, you know, service. It was document storage, or should be document storage, because we did scanning, and we acquired a very um, a, a historic inter- social enterprise. Um, Jim was so helpful there, um, Harbor City Services. They had a very large document um, storage component, fit very well with iScan, and so after a few iterations, we wound up closing some of the service lines and and grew some of the other ones with Harbor City Services, but. With the um, with the city work with details kind of circling back to that just for a second because it is interesting story. So um, the city leadership changed as it always does. So the political changes also have deep effects um, on on the market and on us. And um, the city and Baltimore housing was amazing. So like I can't send enough kudos their way and also the State Department of um, uh, Housing Community Development. So the governor really after you know post Freddie Gray really wanted to put an emphasis on blight removal, job creation, and Project CORE was started. Um, Project CORE was meant to remove even more blight more quickly and create jobs um, and create business opportunities for small businesses, minority contractors. There was an unintended consequence of Project CORE 
in that it took the inventory of houses out of the city control under state control, which mm. essentially dried up our pipeline of houses, which created an enormous uh, drain for us as we were waiting to replenish, you know, because you have to have price, pipeline, pace, you have to have all those things rolling because the margins are low. And if you don't have those rolling, you know, and we didn't want to let people go because we knew it was just around the corner, but just around the corner and the kind of wheels of some, you know, government entities trying to work together took about a year. Mm-hmm. And we but but that resulted in a, in, a, in a very difficult call for you in, in yeah. what you ended up doing with, with the details operation, yeah. right? So we wound up rebounding from that, but we had a lot of financial losses. Um, and I, you could imagine how capital intensive I mean, in terms of like operating capital deconstruction is and the the cash flow of outlaying all the money and then recovering it 45, 60, 30, you know, days afterwards. So the cash flow was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars of float. Um, so we wound up rebounding from the kind of mishap with the houses and then COVID hit. And um, because of the level of cash intensity and the cash flow issues, our organization couldn't bear uh, the output. Um, And we had to make a really, like to me, it was just like a devastating decision to actually close details. Um, And because of a few reasons, one, um, the contract was sort of coming to an end and we weren't sure of the renewal, but just the intensity of the cash and the losses were were just, we couldn't do anything. It was, that was probably Never the most easy. difficult decision. Yeah, but out of that though, we wound up um, spitting out Brick and Board who is thriving and they have the same employees. Um, so they, now it's just a small business. It's not part of Humana. We do help support each other, but they're thriving and they're doing a fantastic job and Max gets to play by his rules. <laughs> so that's good. Um, and then so all, all this stuff is swirling around, right? And all these different is. entities, it right? Is. Things are rising, things are falling. Yeah. And, you know, it's very curious the, the comments you made a minute ago about trying to find business lines in complementary industries. Yes. Yeah. And, and if, I, if I may put you on the spot for a minute, you've yes. never actually done that to any great extent. Exhibit A being what's behind you on your virtual screen, which is City Seeds, which is a food industry. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, we tried to, when we thought about this, as we were starting these businesses, we really started about the industry clusters of where they are. So like, as example, with details. So having brick and board and it's an industry cluster that's not just us. So one of the things that we were really clear about was we wanted it to be more than just us. We wanted it to be beneficial to the small businesses. We wanted to have other partners that could benefit from this and grow that particular sector economy. Because in that, that's awfully music. ambitious. Well, like that's that's. The I'm not. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just pointing it's out that's off. That's awfully ambitious. It's the theory. So 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 the objective in the food business, now now we've sort of, you know, initially it was like okay, we want to find a new way to do job training that's independent of this government funding cycle, and we're going to get paid for it. And we sort of expand that. We try to do things here. Now we take that concept and we put another layer of complexity mm-hmm. on it that says. We don't just want to build work for our own people. We also want to strengthen an industry. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, and I, I will I will tell you that. I just want to give one other example <laughs> of the details and the brick and board. So with that whole kind of idea in mind, we took a look at creating some additional partners. So the US Forest Service came in as a partner. Uh, room and board, the retailer came in as a partner. And with the US Forest Service- In the deconstruction right, areas. Because, right, because the US Forest Service was interested in reclaiming urban wood. So we wound up creating this Baltimore wood project, which then really got much bigger. So you had Sawyers, you had tree people, I, I um, got them forget, uh, arborists, <laughs> the tree people, arborists. Tree people. You, you had, it's a technical we were, term. Right, we were able to start supplying some manufacturers. So here's room and board was always asking us, can, we, can you manufacture for us? We said, no, because in our world, in the supply chain, it's more important for us to push our wood to other people manufacturing because it creates more jobs, more money circulating around and more opportunities for jobs. So again, it's like that piece of wood, that brick goes from the house to deconstruct, to brick and board, to the manufacturers, to the makers. And then, so we created this whole momentum, which a lot of that still lives today. Just because details is no longer in existence, we created with our partners this urban wood economy, which is great. So we were trying to think, can we do that with food? And um, trying to think about, and this is kind of, sorry, so spotty, but this is a central point in all that we do. Where we're best, is in partnership and larger government contracting. That's clearly our best. Um, the direct to consumer um, isn't our best. That's not really in, in our best skill set. So when we started thinking about the food industry, we looked around and we know who our institutional partners are all the universities, all the hospitals, all the big corporations, the anchor institutions, and they buy food. And so can we, again, start that ecosystem cluster with larger contracts to supply um, grab and go and other food items to these institutions? And in doing so, incorporating the small local businesses, their products into our offerings mm -hmm. so that they might not be eligible to contract or willing to or wanting to contract um, because of the lag of payment, the rigmarole of having to get the right insurance that they need and require. So we wound up kind of being a bit of a broker uh, of sorts. I want to get to one point, which, which is really fascinating to me. Um, and that is that the whole notion of social enterprise says that you earn income as a way to pay for mission as opposed to earning income as a way to make individual people rich. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to get your head around that in an individual enterprise, an individual organization. I have a, a, a catering company and I employ folks that are coming from challenged circumstances. A lot of things that Humanum has done very, very well for many, many years. But this notion of taking that another level to we're also going to concede the upstream and downstream opportunities where a for-profit entrepreneur would say, hey, that's called horizontal expansion. And I can get more of the industry up and down the line. You know, it's kind of like the catering company takes over the company that rents the tables and chairs. Sure. 
Yep, yep, right, or right. grows the produce, yeah. Right, or, or right, and, and you're also conceding that point, which is just fascinating to me. Well, we are, we are, and we're not, I mean, we're not, you know, we haven't, we wouldn't concede all of it, but the, for us, a bigger play is in creating the partnerships to be able to create the jobs and then to create some other opportunities for us. So, you know, we can't do it all, but we can also help others, you know, get in the game. And I think that ultimately that winds up benefiting us. So maybe not, you know, in terms of the profitability, but we always had this mantra that we believe the way out is in this partnership collaboration, small business development. Um, we believe and, the way out. That's, that's a fantastic. That's like, I can't think of a better way to sort of encapsulate that. The work that you guys, either you and Lori and everybody else on the team does uh, is absolutely phenomenal. I thank uh, you. And we appreciate it. Thank you. Um, you know, it's really wonderful to be able to brainstorm talk and to, to hear what people have to say. So I am much, uh, much appreciated. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. If you'd like to explore the world of social innovation further, contact us at graduate.umaryland.edu slash innovation. On behalf of the Graduate School and the entire University of Maryland, Baltimore, I'm Jim Kucher. Thanks for joining us. Peace.